You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. Once again, there are just a few of you here today. Uh, I would assume that most of you are viewing from home. Uh, We're glad that you are worshiping with us today, even if it is via video. Uh, The sermon that I'm going to preach today was originally going to just be one week, but uh, the more I started to prepare, the more I realized this sometimes happens that I couldn't get all of the information into one sermon. And I think that this is a very important uh, topic, and so we're going to take two weeks to talk about it. This week's sermon and next week's sermon will probably be the most controversial sermon Sermons that I've preached in a while because we're going to be talking about the role of women in the church. Now those who have grown up uh, believing and supporting what is known as the complementarian view will have no problem with what I'm going to be saying today. And hopefully it will clarify some things for you and even strengthen your convictions. For those who hold to what is known as an egalitarian view, meaning that they see no role distinctions between men and women uh, in the church, my prayer is that you will consider what I say over the next two weeks, uh, weigh it biblically um, more than you do culturally, because I think that's one of the biggest issues that we're dealing with. Now, I know that uh, there are a lot of female preachers out there on the radio, on the TV, and even on this island, Um, and I realize that the position that Galveston Bible Church takes was was the majority view for the first 2,000 years of church history, but is now becoming the minority position, and I would say even on this island, I believe that we are in the minority, but I want to be careful to warn you that the majority does not necessarily mean that that is the correct view. Tim and I were at a a EFCA conference last fall, and the issue of the role of women in the church was one of the main topics that they talked about. And the main speaker held the position that women can teach and preach in his church. There is no role distinction. Now, he said several things during his time, but there were two that stuck out at me. The first is that he said he reached his conclusion through lots of study, his conclusions about men and women's role in the church through lots of study, although he did not offer any of his findings to us who were there. The second thing that stuck out to me and which was most disturbing was his statement that he, a white male, did not feel comfortable telling half of his congregation, implying women, that they could not do something. He, a white male, did not feel comfortable telling half of his congregation, the women in his congregation, that they could not do something. Now, I don't deny that he engaged in much study on this topic, even though he didn't offer uh, what he had studied. The thing that bothered me most is that he <clears throat> imply, uh, he applied or employed what is known as a logical fallacy, the logical fallacy of an emotive argument. An emotive argument appeals to the emotions of a person rather than the facts of the statement, okay? So uh, him saying, I don't feel comfortable 
it would be mean for me to say to the women of the congregation, you can't do this. Aren't I a nice guy? He's appealing to the emotions of them. The point is this, that if the Bible clearly teaches that men and women have separate roles, and that a woman's role does not include teaching men, and that's important because women can teach other women, and if the Bible is in fact the word of God, then this pastor friend of mine does not have to worry about telling half of his congregation that they cannot do something because God already has, right? God already has. And he can hide behind God, so to speak, and say, he's the one who said it, I'm just telling you. I mean, this is what the prophets in the Old Testament did, right? Thus says the Lord, and many of them <laughs> were killed because of their stance. God has already spoken. And what I hope to demonstrate today and next week is that God has given important and differing roles to men and women in his church. And that those roles are given for a purpose. And even though we can't understand the purpose of them, they are given for our good and for the proper functioning of his church. Furthermore, I believe that those roles must be embraced and celebrated, not despised and challenged. I know that this sermon will not end the debate on this issue, but I hope that you will understand this church's position better and my position better as well. And also, I desire to present the opposing side's view with accuracy and with kindness. The last thing that I want to do is, is, is erect what are known as straw men arguments, these weak arguments, and then just knock them over. I want to be able to present the arguments of the other side so well that they say, yes, that's exactly the position that we hold and why we hold that. So what I'm going to ask you to do, uh, for those here and those at home, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we will be looking at verses 11 through 15 today. This week, we're going to deal more with the overall theme of the Bible regarding biblical roles, and we're going to lay a foundation for next week's sermon. Next week, we'll get more into the text and answer the opposing arguments. Uh, there are oppositions to this position, and hopefully lay forth what I believe is the true biblical um, statement that Paul is making. So this is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. This is the very word of God. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Wow. Wow, right? Just reading that passage, we can see why some people label Paul as a sexist or as a male chauvinist, but I don't believe that he is. I believe actually that Paul has a very high view of women, 
which is evident in the many letters that he wrote and, and the many commendations that he gives to the women in the various churches who served faithfully and sacrificially alongside of him. So we need to ask, what in the world is Paul talking about here? Can we justify these statements regarding women? And to answer these questions, we need to ask a couple other questions. Questions such as, what does Paul mean when he says, teach or exercise authority over a man? Does it uh, appear to mean uh, what it actually means? Is, is it saying that a woman can never teach or exercise authority of a man? Or, um, or, is this, or is there an underlining meaning that we're missing here? If it does mean what it seems to be saying, was this just a first century cultural issue that Paul was dealing with? Was he saying, right now for the times, man, it's best if women just don't teach or exercise authority over men. That is going to change in the future, but right now for this cultural situation, just women, just hold on and keep silent. Is that what's going on? Is this a cultural issue or is this a mandate for all churches of all times? These are the questions that we want to answer this week and next week. Now, I know that along the way, I am probably going to raise more questions than answers. And so, I want to make myself available to you, but not this week, next week, after I finish the second sermon, because I may answer some of the questions that you have. But just to be clear at the outset, let me tell you what my position is and what the position of this church is. We hold to what is known as the complementarian view. And that means that God has created men and women equal with differing complementary roles. These roles are established by God for his glory and for the proper functioning of his church. As such, these roles should be celebrated, not envied, usurped, or challenged. Included in these roles is that men, not women, have been given the role of teacher and leader in his church. And although a woman can teach and have a leadership position in the church, she can never have a teaching or leadership role over a man. Okay? So if you're still with me, let's proceed, okay? Since there are some seemingly highly charged words in here, I want to be careful to define these words uh, that we come across this week and next week as we move along. Let's begin in verse 11, where he says this, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Since the context of this letter is a church setting, we get that from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, a woman is to learn the truths of the gospel in quietness and in all submissiveness. This is not a woman learning anything. This is not a woman is to learn physics in all quietness and submissiveness. A woman is to learn mathematics in all quietness and submissiveness. This is a woman is to learn the truths of God, the truths of the gospel in quietness and all submissiveness. Quietness means stillness, a quiet life. And she has to do this in all submissiveness. Submissiveness means subordination. It means becoming uh, in, under subjection of someone else. It literally means to line up under. You have the commander, and then you have those people lining up 
under them. So a woman is to learn the truths of the gospel in the church setting in stillness and subordination to whoever is teaching. Paul then immediately goes on in verse 12 to say this, I do not permit, that means allow, I do not allow or permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Now I know that this is a very seemingly harsh statement, but be careful not to assume that Paul is implying in any way that women are inferior to men, because he is not. Rather, he is distinguishing between the roles of men and women. And roles, whether you like them or not, are important for proper functioning of a society. And therefore, once again, they should not be disdained. They should be celebrated and followed. Submission does not mean inferiority. If it did, then Jesus himself would be inferior to the Father. Okay? Submission does not mean inferiority or Jesus himself would be, in, would be inferior to the Father because Jesus placed himself in submission, in subjection to the Father. There are many verses in the Bible that point to this. Let me just give you a few. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, so that you can read it yourself. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Here's what Paul says here. Listen, this is very important. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The man is under subjection to who? Christ. Okay? The head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The wife is in subjection to her husband. And listen to this. The head of Christ is God. Jesus in subjection to the Father. And if that is not clear enough, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28. And here's what Paul says here. When all things are subjected to him, that's Jesus, then the Son, that's Jesus himself, will also be subjected to him, that's the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, that's Jesus, that God may be all in all. That word subjection that is used here in 1 Corinthians 15, 28 is the exact same word that is used regarding women in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. It is used in this context in Jesus in subjection to the Father. Subjection and submission, once again, do not imply inferiority. They define roles, which we'll get to in a minute. Jesus was and remained and remains equal to the Father. The fact that women were not, uh, the fact that women were or are not inferior to men is plain from the teachings of the Old and the New Testament. First of all, all of the promises and commands and, and blessings in the New Testament apply equally to both men and women. Even in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, Paul said this, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, 
for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In addition to that, there are some very interesting and significant facts. There are women, many prominent women in the Old Testament who are commended for their faith and their strength even in leadership. Women like Rahab or Deborah or Ruth or Esther. There were many women, even there were women such as Tamar, who put men in their place when they were erring. There are many examples of godly women in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Moving into the New Testament, we see this, and this is very significant. The very first person that Jesus revealed his Messiahship to was a woman. The very first person that Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, revealed that Messiahship to was a woman. Jesus healed women. In contrast to the prevailing practices of the rabbis of the day, Jesus taught women. Women ministered to Jesus, and later, after Jesus departed out of this world, women ministered to his disciples, the apostles. Following his resurrection, Jesus first appeared to who? A woman. Okay? That is very, very significant. He appeared to a woman. Finally, women and men were both involved in the prayer services in the early church. So women were very active in the history of God's people. But also at the same time, you have this underlying subjection to male leadership, which is prominent in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and actually goes all the way back to the created order. I say this from time to time, but God does not do anything arbitrarily. He does not do anything arbitrarily. And so when God created Adam, the man first, that was by intention. God was establishing an order and an authority. We see this clearly throughout the Bible. We see it implied uh, in, in, in places like the, the rights that were uh, ascribed to the firstborn males. But we see it firmly established in, here in the New Testament with Paul's statements, such as we find in our text in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, when he says this, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. There is an order to the creation. A God-given established authority given to men. And that's exactly what the context here of 1 Timothy chapter 2 is. Adam was given authority over his wife even before the fall. This was not something that happened after the fall. God's like, you're both equal. Ah, the woman messed up. Therefore, for the rest of your life, you're just going to be subject to the man. No, this was before the fall. We saw this earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. If you're still there, you can turn back there. He says this, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Is there ever a time where Jesus was not the head of the man? No, there was never a time. This is not after the fall. After the fall, Jesus became the head of man, and man became the head of woman. No, this is a creation ordinance. There's an established order. We see this further 
in Ephesians chapter 5. If you want to turn there, Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul is talking about the, uh, the responsibilities of, of husbands to wives and wives to husbands. In Ephesians 5, beginning of verse 22, Paul says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Isn't that what Paul just said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? The husband is the head of the wife. The wife is to submit to the husband because the husband is the head of the wife here. The husband, the man, has been given that authority. And then Paul goes on to root these divine roles in the created order because he finishes this chapter in verse 31 by quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, which says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The reason that I read that verse is because that is pre-fall once again. This is before man fell, that this order was established by God. This was God's original intention, and there is no indication that I can find in the Bible whatsoever that says that that order has changed. There's nothing that says in the Old Testament or the New Testament that used to be what it is, but now here's what it is. One of the things that we talk about often in uh, this church is the three main offices in the Old Testament. That of a prophet, a priest, and a king. We see those prominent throughout uh, the uh, Old Testament, and we see that Jesus fulfills all of those in the New Testament. We're not going to get into that right now. But throughout the Old Testament, here's what I want you to notice. There were no women kings, all right? Now you may say, well, of course there's no women kings because they're called queens, right? But there were no queens that ruled over Israel, the men of Israel. There was a woman named Athaliah, but she usurped the authority, um, and she was not a, she was an ungodly woman, and you have uh, uh, queens like Jezebel mentioned, but she, her husband Ahab, was the one who was ruling. So we don't see women in general ruling over men. Now there are women who are called prophetesses in the Old Testament. But an interesting thing about that is you don't see, it doesn't seem to be implied that there's an ongoing prophetic ministry, that they had a significant prophetic ministry like Elijah would or like um, Isaiah would or Daniel or others. But regardless of that, the most telling is that in Israel, when, we, when we're getting to the issue of the major offices, there were no priests that were women. There were no priests whatsoever that were women. And this is very, very significant because the nations around them had priestesses. They had female priests that were involved in the worship of their gods. But in Israel, there was no women priests. In fact, in the Hebrew, there is no, there's not even a word for priestesses. It's not even there because there was, that office did not exist. Now this is significant because the priests were in charge of what? The worship of God. They were in charge of leading the people in the worship of God, offering the sacrifices, instructing people in the word of God. That was their primary objective. That was their primary role. And it was reserved for men only. It was reserved completely for males. And as we move into the New Testament, we do not see one single female apostle. There are no female apostles. As I already mentioned before, Jesus threw off all social norms, right? 
I mean, Jesus, um, he, he ate with unclean people. He walked through Samaria. He taught women. If there was any point that Jesus would have changed the order of things, he certainly would have done it during his earthly ministry. He certainly would have done it by appointing at least one woman, right? I mean, she had to be better than Judas. But he didn't do that at all. He did not appoint one female apostle. Furthermore, not a single book in the Old Testament or the New Testament was written by a woman. You don't see female apostles, and you don't see females in positions of authority over men either in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Now I'm aware of exceptions regarding people like Deborah, who was a judge uh, in Israel, but that was an exception and not the norm. And in fact, in Isaiah chapter 3, you don't have to turn there, you can listen. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 12, seems to indicate that women ruling was not a good thing. And you might even call it a curse from God. It says this, my people, infants are their oppressors. Okay, let's just stop there for a second. Infants, those little kids in the nursery are the ones who are oppressing. I mean, they're weak, right? And Israel is so weak at this point that they can't even, they can't even deal with the infants. Infants are their oppressors and women rule over them. You hear that? Women rule over them. Once again, this is not a statement of female inferiority. This is a statement of regarding God-given roles, which brings us to the topic of roles. Now, you probably don't think too much about roles uh, throughout the course of your day or week, but roles are very significant in the world. I used to work at Walgreens, and in each of the stores in Walgreens, there is a store manager and there is a pharmacy manager. The store manager is in charge of the store. The pharmacy manager is in charge of the pharmacy department. When I was there, I was not a pharmacy manager, which meant that I was in subjection to the pharmacy manager. Whatever he or she said, I had to do. The manager of the store was in charge of all the employees. There was not equal authority given to everyone. Could you imagine how chaotic that would be? If all the employees had equal authority, hey, do this. No, I'm not going to do that. Nothing would get done at all. There are roles for the proper ordering of the store. And even when we look at nature, we see roles again. Right? Go all the way back to Genesis 1. I love it because God says this. He's talking about the lights that he's putting in heaven. And he says the greater light, which is the sun, will rule the day. That's its role. And the lesser light, the moon, will rule the night. Let's just talk about those for a second. The sun and the moon. There are some similarities, but there are major differences. The sun provides wonderful heat, right? The sun provides, it, it stimulates photosynthesis in the plants that they can give off oxygen and that they can grow. The sun provides light, among other things, right? It's nice that when the sun comes out, you can actually see things. The sun actually stimulates the production of vitamin D, in the human body, which is essential to life. Those are some of the roles that the sun has. The moon has lesser roles, right? The moon provides some light, but not as much as the sun does. But the moon, I mean, when it's a full moon, it's bright outside, right? It's nice when you go out. 
The moon uh, provides beauty as well. If you, if you just see the moon, a full moon or even a crescent moon, whatever it is, it, it provides beauty. The moon also helps to regulate the tides of the oceans. The moon uh, has, may have lesser role, but still an essential role. Both are important, but both possess differing God-given roles. Let's take another example, trees, right? Trees have a certain role, a certain function in society. Trees can provide oxygen. Trees can provide shade, which we're going to need in a couple of weeks and months as the Galveston sun starts to come out. Trees can also provide food. They can also provide shelter or homes for birds and other animals. Trees can also be used to construct houses and such. Small insects is another example. They have a role in society. Unfortunately, probably one of their prominent roles is to be food for larger insects or animals, which are food for even larger animals, which are food for even larger animals. And the Bible is clear that God gives the lion his food. How does he do that? God doesn't come and say, here, Mr. Lion. God provides wildebeests and other things, right? They serve a role and a function in God's creation. The human body is something that we talk about a lot in here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about how the, the body is one but has differing parts which all hold a different role. Your eye has a different role than your brain. The eye cannot say, man, I'm jealous. I want to be the brain. I want to function as the brain, right? And the brain doesn't say, you know what? I'm tired of being the brain. I want to be the kidney. They have differing important roles. Now, someone may object um, at that uh, last illustration and say, well, wait, wait, the eye could never ever function as the brain. It just does not have the ability to do that. It does not have the neurons that the brain does, nor can the brain function as the eye. It does not have an iris. It does not have a pupil. It doesn't have any of those things. But a woman can certainly function like a man. She can teach, right? She can be authoritative. So your argument falls flat. To that I would say, yes, yes, very, very true. Which brings us to God-given job roles. As was already mentioned, the major office of a priest in the Old Testament— which involved leading the people in worship, was reserved for men only. But if you think about the priest for a moment, not only was it isolated to men, it was also further isolated to one tribe out of 12 in Israel, right? It was isolated to the tribe of Levi. Now let's take someone from the tribe of Judah, a wise, intelligent, godly man who may have seen the sacrifices done over and over again, may have studied the Torah, would he be able physically to carry out those sacrifices, to teach and to do the functions of a priest? Yes, he would be able to do that, but was he permitted by God to do that? No, he was not. It was specifically designated to the Levites. No one else could do that. I don't care how godly they were. I don't care how smart they were. I know how, how easy the task may have been. It was purely, simply given to the Levites. It was their God-given role. Once again, capable? Maybe. Yes. Permitted? No. 
We may not always understand God's commands or how God order things, orders things, but that never gives us a reason or an excuse to violate God's divinely ordered creation. Many might argue, well, men are neglecting their duties. That's why women have to step up. Men are, are, are not being faithful in teaching. That's why we need women to step up and to fill those roles. No doubt men are guilty of this. I, I, I won't even argue that. But that does not give someone else the, uh, the right to assume a role that God has not given them. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13. And what we see in this uh, passage uh, chapter 13 is that uh, King Saul has been told by Samuel, they're getting ready to go into battle, and, and, and Saul has been told by Samuel, wait for me. I will come and I will offer the burnt offering and the peace offering, and then we can go into battle, but wait for me. Okay, so that's the, the situation. So in 1 Samuel chapter eight, or 13, beginning in verse 8, it says this, He that Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at, at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I, I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, good job. No, no, that's not what he said. He said, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. Let's stop there. There's no doubt that Saul saw Samuel and others offer the burnt offering and the peace offering multiple times. It's easy. I know how to do it. I've seen it done many times. I can do it. But it didn't matter because it was not his role to do it. It was not his God-given role. And desperate times do not warrant role reversals. They don't. Saul was not permitted to offer these sacrifices, but he took it upon himself. And there were consequences. We see these consequences at the end of verse 13. In verse 14, it says this, Samuel continuing to talk, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. God takes roles very, very seriously, and so should we. Let me give you one more human example, if you will. Uh, think about Jonathan the son of Saul, who was the king. Jonathan, as the son of Saul, was next in line to be king, right? That was his right. That was, that's how things worked. But that was not what God was calling him to do. That role was never given to him by God. It was given to another. 
was Jonathan capable of being king? I believe he was. I mean, he would have been a better king than his father. You see some of the stuff that he does in the book of 1 Samuel, and it's amazing. He is a, he is a, 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 a leader, okay? He was capable of doing that, but it was not his God-given role. It was given to David. And so what was Jonathan's response to David? Was he jealous of David? Was he angry towards David? Did he try everything in his power to ensure that David would not sit on the throne? No. No, what did he do? He knew that it was not his role. He acknowledged that David was going to be king, and he did everything in his power to ensure that David would become king, right? Even risking his own life as someone who understood his role and that his role was not to be king. In the end, Jonathan knew it was not about Jonathan. He knew it was not about what he wanted or what he thought was best. It was about God and God's purpose in the world. But if this is not proof enough, we come to what I believe is the most compelling argument for distinctive roles. And the most compelling argument for distinctive roles is found in God himself. Okay? It is found in God himself, in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, you see that God created male and female in his own image. Now, there's a lot into what it means to, to be created in the image of God, but part of that means that both male and female together make up the image of God, which means that they have distinctive roles. Think about it for a minute. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all equally God. They are equal in power and glory, but not all fulfill the same role in creation and in the redemption of mankind. Neither the Father nor the Spirit started out as a zygote, if you will, developed in the womb of a human woman, went through the birth canal, had to learn how to crawl and then walk and then talk. They did not suffer physical rejection from mankind. They did not suffer the constant threats on their life. It was the son who did all of these things. And if you think about it, even in this book that we're, we're studying in 1 Timothy, the father is called Savior. The father could not be called Savior unless the son actually fulfilled his role of doing what he was called to do. The son was the one who was punished for our sins. The Son is the one who took the wrath of the Father. The Son was the one who purchased our salvation. I want to stop there for one second and ask a question. Do you think that the Father or the Holy Spirit was capable of becoming a human being? When I look at the Bible, I'm thinking nothing's impossible with God, right? They had the capability of doing that, but that was not their role. It was not the role of the Father or the Holy Spirit. And please don't think for a minute that Jesus felt like he got the short end of the stick, right? Like, oh, you know, like they're doing rake, rock, paper, scissors, right? And Jesus is like, ah, oh, two out of three, right? Or three out of five. No, that wasn't the case. Jesus wasn't lamenting his role. Jesus took on this role willingly, and as Hebrew says, with joy, with joy. Was it hard? You bet it was hard, right? You bet it was hard, but Jesus, knowing that he would be humiliated, knowing that he would be humbled, also knew 
that after that he would be what? Exalted as well. This was what he was called to do. This is his role. But how can we call the Father Savior if it's Jesus who did all of the stuff that was required to save us? Well, because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are working in complete and total unity, and, right? They're, they're working in unity together. There's no war between them. Think about this. Think about the, the U.S. If the U.S. goes to war, and it's a battle that's raging on for a couple of years, and the President of the United States comes and says, we won the war. And you're thinking, what do you mean, we? You never picked up a gun. You never flew a plane. What do you mean, we? It's the, it's the Green Berets that are out there, right? It's the Army. It's the Navy. It's the Air Force. It's the Marines. It's the people on the ground. Those are the people who won the war. No, no, it's not just them, right? Because maybe those are the ones who are firing the shots, but under, uh, they are under sergeants who are under various commanders who are under the Secretary of War who is under the Commander-in-Chief the President of the United States, and they're all playing a role in winning the war. And so they all get the victory. They have differing roles, but they're all involved in the same battle. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all involved in our salvation, but they have differing roles. Differing roles, but one purpose, the salvation of of humanity. The Father sent the Son, the Son purchased salvation, and then the Holy Spirit applies the work that Jesus did to the individual person. This is a beautiful execution of roles. Roles are very important. Once again, they do not imply for a moment inferiority. Satan is the one who tempts us to think that they imply inferiority. Because Satan hates everything that God establishes, and Satan seeks to distort or destroy everything that God establishes. So be aware. And I want to be careful here, but I wonder how many people's views of, of women's role in the church have changed. Because someone at some point said, well, couldn't it be possible? Wouldn't it be better if it was like this? And then people stopped searching out the scriptures, stopped diligently studying, and said, yeah, I guess it could be. And plus, we would look better in the eyes of the world. We wouldn't look like we're uh, chauvinistic. We wouldn't look like we're sexist or misogynistic. Well, I'm going to end there. I still know that there are many uh, unanswered questions, and we'll take those up next week as we look more closely at the text and consider the arguments on the opposing side um, and those who hold a different view. And we'll take them one by one. Okay, and then we'll finish once again with the glorious role that God has called both men and women to fulfill. Now I realize uh, as I close that there are some may, who may be thinking, why spend so much time on this topic? Why spend two weeks on this? I mean, there are, we're in a pandemic right now. Shouldn't we be focusing on that? Shouldn't we be focusing on, on issues of salvation? I mean, people need to be saved. Why are we taking two weeks to talk about this seemingly unimportant issue. Well, there's a couple of reasons why we're doing that. The first is that we here at uh, Galveston Bible Church are committed to expository preaching. 
which means that we preach through books of the Bible. We believe that the whole Bible needs to be preached. Every word is important. And I felt led uh, several months ago to preach through the book of 1 Timothy because the book of 1 Timothy tells us how the church should be ordered. And we all need to know how the church should be ordered. What is my role in the church? What is the church to do? What's the purpose of the church? We need to know these things. And this is the topic that came up, right? So we have to address it. And we can't ignore it and we can't take it, it we can't pass over it like, lightly. And I would say this, since Paul spent other times talking about this issue, it's probably important, right? Because this is not the only time that he addresses the issue of women. He addresses them in other passages as well, which means that it's very important. And this brings me to the second reason why I think that this is important. And that's because our culture, under the influence of Satan, is doing everything in its power to destroy God's beautiful design um, and distinction for men and women. He's been doing this for hundreds and thousands of years. For decades, our culture has sought to abolish the distinctive roles between men and women in the workplace and in the home. And now our culture is even seeking to destroy the distinctions between male and female, even anatomically. I know that this has been around for a bit, but it just seems like in the last uh, five uh, plus years, there's this huge push to confuse genders, to, to advocate for gender reassignments, to, um, to, to change your gender from male to female or female to male, either through surgery or hor hormones. To use the term male or to use the term female uh, to refer to someone without asking if that's what they prefer is the unforgivable sin in our society. How dare you do that? You don't know if I'm a man. You don't know if I'm a woman. But the truth of the matter is that God has made men and women amazingly different. And when we work together in our God-given roles, we make an amazing, amazing team by God's design. Therefore, I think that it is imperative that we understand this issue not bow to the pressures to conform to our society, especially since our society has never led us in a right or godly direction, right? Why in the world would we follow their lead right now? So I want to urge you to seriously consider what I've said today and then to join us next week because I do believe that this issue is important. Let's pray. Father, um, I just pray. I thank you for your word Lord, when we start to look into these things, and I pray that we will, that we would just see, my goodness, Lord, you're so good. You're so wise. You, you love order, Lord. You, you love um, this created world, and you want it to run in a way that is ordered. And so we just thank you, Lord. We thank you for the distinctive roles that you have given uh, to men and to women. And we pray, Lord, that we would uh, execute those roles with wisdom and humility. A man is not to, to be domineering over a woman, and a woman is not to usurp the authority of a man. And Lord, when these, these relationships work in concert, Lord, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so I pray, God, that we would understand uh, these issues. Lord, I pray that I would present, I pray that today I presented your word uh, uh, fairly and accurately, and I, and I pray that next week, Lord, as we dig into the text more um, and get a little bit more uh, into more complicated issues, Lord, I pray that I would speak only the truth of your word and not impose on the text something that is not there. We thank you for this time, and we just pray this in the name of Jesus. 
Amen.